Well, please turn back in God's Word to Exodus chapter 13 and to verses 17 to 22, those verses that we read together earlier in the service. Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22, page 55 if you're using the church Bible. There are many times in the Exodus story where God acts in surprising and unexpected ways. The Bible tells us that his ways are not our ways. And that's not because the Lord is quirky or unpredictable just for the sake of it. It's not because he's capricious or whimsical. It's because he is so infinitely greater than we are, so infinitely wiser than we are, that we just can't even begin to grasp the trillions upon trillions of things that he is doing at any given moment to work all things together for our good. I remember reading uh, a statement that uh, struck me very forcibly. Uh, Someone said an expert can hit a target that no one else can hit, but a genius can hit a target that no one else can see. An expert can hit a target that no one else can hit, but a genius can hit a target that no one else can even see. And I remember thinking, that's true. And we could add a third layer, couldn't we? The Lord hits a target that no one else can even imagine. The Lord can hit a target that no one else can even imagine. He is doing all kinds of unimaginable things. Even if the Lord were to to try to explain his ways to us, What are the chances that any of us could understand? We would need to have the infinite omniscience that the Lord has, that infinite capacity to understand and see everything all at once, to be able to understand his ways. And we see that again and again in the story of the Exodus. And we see it here as Israel comes up out of Egypt. This is the sequel to the plagues, bringing the people out of Egypt. That's just really the first part of the story. Now he's bringing them to the promised land. And perhaps, you remember the story, of course, perhaps after the ten plagues, we might have expected that the journey to the promised land would all be plain sailing. God has done these astonishing, awesome acts of power. And now the road to the promised land will just be lined the whole way with people cheering in awe of God, in awe of Israel, like a great victory parade, a a ticker tape parade. But that isn't what happens at all, is it? The next bit of the story is... Very unexpected, 
perhaps we've lost something of the, the shock of it because we know the story so well, but it's very, very strange when you think about it. God leads this vast multitude out of Egypt into the wilderness. And that word wilderness is emphasized over and over again in these chapters. Chapter 13, verse 18. He leads them by the way of the wilderness. Chapter 15, verse 22. He leads them into the wilderness of Shur. Chapter 16, he leads them into the wilderness of sin. Chapter 17, he leads them into a waterless wilderness called Rephidim. Chapter 19, he leads them into the wilderness of Sinai. And of course, they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness in the end. A vast and dreadful desert as Deuteronomy 8.13 describes it, a thirsty and waterless land with snakes and scorpions. If you were writing the story of the Exodus, if you were making this up, that's not, I think, what we would make the sequel to the Ten Plagues. The wilderness, a dreadful desert, a thirsty, waterless land with snakes and scorpions. It doesn't make sense, does it? It, It's strange. It's unexpected. These people, according to chapter 4, verse 22, are God's firstborn son. That's what Israel is, God's firstborn son. These are the people that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And God has promised that he's going to bring them to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. He is their God. They are his people. So why is he treating them like this? Why is he leading them into the wilderness? And those are not purely academic questions, are they? Those are the kinds of questions that God's people ask today. If I am God's precious possession... If I am God's child, if he is my father, why is this happening to me? Why is he allowing this to to go on in my life? Have I taken a wrong turn? Has he lost his way? Why is this happening now? Why is it going on for so long? Why is it so savage in its intensity? Where did I go wrong? And maybe that's a pressing question for some of you this morning. And the the story of the Exodus reassures us. Israel is in the wilderness. This terrible place. Because the Lord led them there. And he knows what he's doing. And this passage that we're looking at this morning tells us at least three things about God that help us as we follow his directions, as we travel through the wilderness of this world to the promised land of heaven. And the first thing that we see in verses 17 and 18 
is God's wise compassion. God's wise compassion. The Israelites come to a crossroads at the border of Egypt. And it must have seemed to them, uh, they didn't have Google Maps as we were thinking about with the children, but it must have seemed to them as though God was giving them the wrong directions. Because the obvious way to go to get to Canaan when you're leaving Egypt at the border is to go due north along a very well-traveled, well-paved road called the Way of the Sea. It was the shortest route. It was the most direct route. It was the natural route. It was the way that everybody went from Egypt to Canaan. It would have taken less than two weeks to journey there. And that's not the way that God leads them. Instead of leading the people north towards Canaan, he turns them south and east into the desert. It's a little bit like if somebody was giving you directions to Dublin from Newton Ards and they told you that you've got to start by going northwest to Donegal. It it, it just seems like completely and utterly the wrong way. And yet the Lord knows, of course, doesn't he, exactly what he's doing. This is an illustration of his infinite wisdom. He knows what is best, and he knows the best way to bring about what is best. If you ever want a little handy soundbite definition of God's wisdom, you can't do better than that. God's wisdom means he knows what is best, And he knows the best way to bring about what is best. And God explains his reason in verse 17. He doesn't always explain his reasons, but he does in this case. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, here's the explanation, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The sea road, the normal route, would have led Israel straight immediately into battle. The Philistines on the coast road would not have welcomed the appearance of two million refugees in their territory. And they would have retaliated with war. And so God doesn't take them that way. It was the obvious way to go, but the Lord knows best. And that that little detail in verse 17 is so touching, isn't it? It's so helpful. The Lord knows that Israel is fragile. She's not ready for war just yet. Israel is going to face war in about two months' time against the Amalekites in chapter 17, but they can't handle it now. Not yet. They need time to recover. These are people, remember, who have lived as oppressed slaves for decades, probably as long as any of them can remember. And suddenly they've been set free in a traumatic 
and dramatic supernatural confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Just remember the kinds of things that these people have experienced over the previous weeks. What must it have been like for them to live through the plagues and to see them? I mean, they were spectators. They weren't directly affected by them. But to to see that all playing out before their eyes, the apocalyptic devastation of the ten plagues, that confrontation between God, the true God, and the gods of Egypt, to live through the Passover, What a traumatic night that must have been, especially if you happen to be the firstborn in your family. And then, just as they've been doing, to walk out of Egypt. It's easy just to gloss over that, isn't it? That they they left Egypt. They packed up their stuff and they walked out of the land. But remember that as they walk out of the land, and Moses tells us this in Numbers 33 verse 4, they're passing funeral after funeral after funeral. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of Egyptians who are burying their firstborn sons. That's what these people have just been through. They're overjoyed to be free, of course they are, but it's a frightening prospect to suddenly be free when all you've ever known is slavery. You know perhaps how prisoners struggle if they've been released from long sentences, they they struggle to adjust to life on the outside. The freedom is too much for them. They can't reintegrate into normal society. remember reading about a prisoner in the Bastille dungeon who was set free in the revolution. He'd spent years and years in one of the darkest, most disgusting dungeons in the whole of that disgusting prison and he was brought out into the light and set free and 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 he hated it and he couldn't stand the light and he couldn't bear the space and he begged and pleaded to be taken back into his dungeon again got to remember these are traumatized people and the lord knows that and the lord cares about that We know from later on in the story that Israel was all too ready to think of going back into Egypt. They were very quick to talk about giving up and going back. Chapter 16, verse 3, they look back longingly to the plentiful food that they remembered in Egypt while they were hungry in the wilderness. And then in Numbers 14, verse 4, when they're actually at the border of Canaan and they're about to go into the promised land, even then, on the threshold of the promised land, they're ready to elect a new leader and go back to Egypt again. It didn't take much to knock these damaged, traumatized, fearful people. And so God is so kind and so tender and so gracious towards them. And that's why he takes them the long way round. Now, it's not at all that the way of the wilderness was an easy way. There were plenty of challenges and plenty of trials in the wilderness. To start with, they're going to be trapped by the Egyptian army between the army and the Red Sea. 
And then they're going to go to the desert of Shur with its bitter, undrinkable water in chapter 15. They're going to be in the wilderness of sin where there's no food in chapter 16. And then Rephidim turns out to be waterless in chapter 17. Then they have that long encampment of just over a year in the desert of Sinai in chapter 19. The way of the wilderness is not the easy way. It is a very, very difficult way indeed. But it's the best way. It's the best way. And the Lord knows that. And the Lord always knows the best way. It may not be the shortest way. It may not be the most obvious way to us. It may not be the way that everyone else would take. It may not be the most direct way. It may seem to us to be completely the wrong way entirely. But God's way is always the right way. It's always the best way for his people. We've got to trust that. We've got to believe that. We've got to hold on to that. When it feels as though God is taking us down a blind alley. He carefully calibrates our trials to match our circumstances and our limits. That's what he's doing here, isn't it? He spares Israel war in these first few crucial weeks after the Exodus. But he's not sparing them from all trials. He takes them into the wilderness to expose them to different trials. But he carefully, wisely, judiciously determines the exact degree and kind of trial that they need. He's like a wise teacher or or a wise coach who knows just how much to push the student or the athlete to get the best out of them. The Lord knows your limitations. And he promises that he will not push you beyond what you can bear. And we need to learn this lesson ourselves, don't we? God always knows what is best and does what is best. Even when it seems like he has completely lost the way. When life seems like it is just complete and utter chaos, you've got to believe that the Lord still knows what he's doing. Just because you can't understand it, just because you can't see a purpose in it, doesn't mean that there is no purpose. We had a lady in Trinity uh, who is able to testify to this. A few years ago, her husband died tragically and quite suddenly from uh, cancer that was just diagnosed a month before he died. And the first Christmas after her husband's death was going to be really, really hard for them as a family. And so she and her two daughters decided that they would go away for a few days over Christmas uh, with uh, this woman's mother. Uh, They just couldn't face being at home without their husband and father. And then... Uh, Just a few days before Christmas, they all caught COVID and they ended up having to stay in the house, just the three of them, and they had no groceries 
and they had done no preparations at that stage for Christmas. And you would think that is the, the worst and cruelest thing, surely, that could possibly have happened to that poor family. What is God doing? But she said it turned out to be the best possible thing that could have happened to them. Because they experienced the love of the church in a new way as people flooded them with gifts and food so that they could uh, cater for themselves for Christmas. It gave them time to rest instead of going away off to some anonymous place. It gave them time just to rest and be at home and to bond together and to play games together and to talk together and to heal together in a way that she suspects they probably wouldn't have done if they'd gone away. They were, they, their plan had been to go away to avoid any of that kind of thing. God's plan was to keep them at home. His way is best. And that's what we need to remind ourselves again and again. As for God, his way is perfect. Whether it's illness or bereavement or the loss of a job, or disappointment in a relationship, or failing an exam. As for God, his ways are perfect. His way may be hard. The road through the wilderness brought all kinds of hard tests, but his way is best. He knows what we need. He knows what we can cope with, and he's teaching us to trust him. So there's one thing about God that this passage teaches us, his wise compassion. But then secondly, uh, much more briefly in verse 19, we also see God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness. Here's another thing that helps us to trust the Lord as he leads us through the wilderness. There's this strange detail uh, about Joseph's bones, his mummified remains in an Egyptian sarcophagus. There's a quotation here from Genesis 50 verse 25 where Joseph made his brothers promise that they would bring his remains back to Canaan for burial. Why is it mentioned here? Well, it's mentioned here surely because it's evidence of the Lord's covenant faithfulness. It's a reminder that God keeps his promises. Hebrews 11 verse 22 says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. In other words, as he was dying, Joseph believed Joseph had faith that God would do what he had said that he would do when he had said that he would do it. God had told Abraham and the patriarchs that he was going to bring the Israelites down into Egypt and that they would be there as slaves, but then that he would bring them out of slavery back to the promised land. And now those promises are being fulfilled. And Joseph's trust is well founded. And by taking his bones, Israel is making a statement of faith as well. 
They're saying something, aren't they, by taking these bones with them. They're saying, we believe that God is going to keep his promise. He's going to bring us to the promised land, and we're going to be able to settle there, and we're going to be able to bury Joseph's remains at Shechem in the promised land. God is not just going to rescue us from slavery in Egypt. He's going to bring us all the way home as well. Just notice what it says there in chapter 12, verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 430 years. That's how long they've been in Egypt. That's how long it took God to keep his promise. In fact, it's going to be another 40 years, as it turns out, before they go to the promised land. It's a reminder, isn't it, that God works on his own time scale and not on ours. It's not a quick route. It's not the direct route. This is the long way round. It has taken four centuries. And there have been all kinds of reasons for that delay, some of which we know because we're told them in the Bible, many of which we don't know. Why did it have to be 430 years that they were there as slaves? Could it not have been 350 or 270? But God knows exactly what he's doing. It's all happening precisely according to his timetable. In fact, it says in verse 41 of chapter 12 that they were in Egypt 430 years to the very day. To the very day. God said it would be 430 years, and it was exactly to the day, 430 years. God's covenant faithfulness. His timing may not be our timing, but he is always faithful. That was true then, and it's true today as well. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. God will do everything that he has promised to do at exactly the right time. We may not live to see the fulfillment of some of his promises. But that isn't going to stop him from keeping them. The second coming we've been waiting for now for more than 430 years. It's been 2,000 years. But rest assured, God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't changed his mind. And we mustn't let the delay fool us into thinking that it won't happen. The Israelites might have thought that when they were slaves in Egypt in year 263. And it reminds us not to get impatient with God's timing in our own lives as well. His wise compassion, his covenant faithfulness, and then thirdly and lastly, God's guiding presence. Here's the third encouragement for us as we travel to the promised land through the wilderness of this world. God's guiding presence in verses 20 to 22. 
Because God doesn't just tell Moses the way to go. He goes with Israel. And he shows the Israelites the way. He sends a huge supernatural visible manifestation of his presence to lead his people. Verse 21, the Lord went before them by day as a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. God knows the best way and he goes with his people to make sure that they walk in that way. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire leads the way. It gives them light so that they can travel when it's dark and when it's cool as well as in the cool parts of the day. He stays with the people constantly. Verse 22, the Lord assures his people that he's with them, that he's not going to forsake them once they're out of Egypt. And he protects them with his presence as well. The pillar leaves Israel in no doubt whatsoever that God is with them, that they're going the right way. You can't miss this towering pillar of fire or cloud there's no question at all about the path that the Lord wants them to take it's there for all to see guidance for Israel was easy and unmissable he doesn't leave the people to guess where he wants them to go he doesn't leave them to choose the way for themselves every move in every direction is crystal clear there are no mistakes whether they're in the comfort of Elam Or in the dire straits of Rephidim, the Lord led them to each of those places. And I'm sure that you wonder at times if you're going the right way. If you're following the path that the Lord means for you to to follow. Maybe you wish that he would send a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire that you could follow to the right university course or to the right job or to the right marriage partner to the right church the right non-christian to witness to Ruth and I certainly would have appreciated a cloud of pillar a pillar of cloud or fire uh, to show us whether to go to Galway or Carrick Fergus or stay at Trinity uh, over the last few few weeks surely that would be much better Lord if you just sent us a pillar of cloud or fire But actually, we do have this pillar of cloud and fire as Christians today. And we have it in a much, much better way even than the Israelites. Because this cloud of God's presence is the outshining of his glory. Later on, it descends and it fills the tabernacle. The most holy place. It is the Shekinah. It is the glory cloud of God's presence. And this is the presence of God's glory that is embodied in a person rather than a cloud when Jesus Christ comes into the world. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, just like the glory cloud tabernacled in the tabernacle dwelt in the most holy place. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus promises that he's going to send another like him, 
to be present with his people and to guide them. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And that promise is fulfilled, as you know, when Jesus ascends to heaven. And from heaven then he pours out the Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost. And how does the Spirit come? What's the symbol? Fire. Tongues of fire. And it's that Holy Spirit that lives in you and me today. Jesus says you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the pillar of God's presence, that pillar that went in front of the Israelites through the wilderness. That pillar of cloud and fire, that pillar of God's presence is now indwelling you in the Holy Spirit. His presence is not out there in front of you, but it is within you and within me. The pillar of cloud and fire is in your very heart. And God is close to you and present with you in a way that the Israelites didn't know. And so you can know that the Lord is with you by his spirit as you cry, Abba, Father. And you can know his will. You can know the way that he wants you to go because the Holy Spirit who is in you opens your eyes so that you can see the truth and he gives you the power to walk in it. God's presence, God's guiding presence is with us. Maybe this week, as the Lord leads you through the wilderness of this world, he's going to lead you into some very challenging path. Here are three powerful reasons to trust him. His compassionate wisdom. Because he knows what's best for you. He knows the best way. Even if it doesn't look like it to us sometimes. His covenant faithfulness. He will keep every promise that he has made to you. He's not going to tempt you beyond what you can bear. He's not going to push you beyond what you can cope with. He's never going to leave you. And his guiding presence. He's with you. To lead you and to protect you. And even if he leads you this week to go through fire and deep waters, he says, I am with you all the days to the very end of the age. Amen.